This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to Get Started Investing, a production of Equitymates Media. This 12-part series is everything you need to get started on your investing journey. Look for the job that you would take if you didn't need a job. I mean, you know, don't sleepwalk through life. I got lucky. No says if I'd been born a few thousand years ago, I'd have been some animal's lunch because I'd have gone around saying, well, I, I allocate capital, you know. And the animals say they're the kind that taste the best, you know. And I can't run fast. I can't climb trees. Welcome to Get Started Investing, a series of lessons to help you on your investing journey. This is for anyone who wants to start investing but isn't really sure where to start. Our aim is to make the markets accessible to you. My name is Bryce, and as always, I am joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? It's very good, Bryce. We are up to episode 11. Yes. Second last of the series. Yes. Unless we decide to tack on some more in the end. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Ren, we're really bringing it all together now. We have discussed everything from finding a broker, setting up the broker, talking about indexes, where you can find information on stocks, where you can find inspiration for stocks. We've spoken about the process of buying and selling individual and direct stocks. And now, Ren, we wanted to discuss everything there is to building a great portfolio. Yes, we are going from buying one stock to managing multiple stocks. Yes. Big leap forward. Big leap, but uh, it's just, not as scary as it sounds. Just rinse and repeat last episode's lessons maybe five to 20 times, <laughs> and then you're in a portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, we can move on to the next episode now. <laughs> so the question is, what does it take to build a great portfolio? Money. Yes, among other things. What else? A broker. (laughs) So this episode, we're going to debunk the myth that you need to be an expert to build a great portfolio. The truth is that as long as you're dedicated, you do your own research and are prepared to have some fun along the way and learn from your mistakes, anyone is capable of building a great portfolio. And unlike recently built Sydney apartments, we're going to teach you how to build it in a structurally sound way. (laughs) Correct. So Ren, there's I think four major things we want to discuss. We want to discuss setting goals, thinking about risk, diversification, and then also allocation. They're probably for us the four fundamental building blocks that you need to consider when building a great portfolio. Yep. Now, you're the uh, the go-getter and goal setter amongst us. So, why don't you kick us off with the first one? Talk to us about goal setting. So goal setting, you get these large posts. Oh, here and- we go. <laughs> you, you can really tell that we're, uh, we're getting to the tail of the episode. <laughs> Man, I really learned from the best. <laughs> well, that was my goal. <laughs> so goal setting, I think, is relatively important, Ren, because it helps frame how you approach, obviously, your, your investing. Everyone can have different goals. 
your goal may be that you want to use investing as a means of building up a large sum of money so that at some point in the future you can use that to put towards a house deposit or your goal might be that you want to develop a large portfolio so that it can generate income and you can move away from the nine to five and I guess support yourself that way. There are many goals out <laughs> there. A lot, of, a lot of your goals sound a lot like the fire, fire movement <laughs> that you were so disparaging about in earlier episodes. Still, I still am, Ren. I still am. <laughs> Fire may be a goal of yours. It may be. Yes, for, yeah. for example. But I think it is important to at least have a goal in mind when you start out investing because otherwise you could go on a very wayward journey and make decisions that perhaps will come back to bite you later on down the track. So what's your goal? My goal for from an investing point of view is to develop a portfolio over a long period of time so that when I do get into my later years, I am, not, closer. I am not reliant <laughs> on, <laughs> I'm not reliant on my day job and can use the income that comes from that and to, I guess, supplement my activities. It's almost <laughs> as if you want financial independence. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And I see the stock market as a way of being able to do that. Yeah. What about you? What's your goal? Similar. Uh, I want money not to be the driver of my decisions and I want to build a solid nest egg is the word, but a solid financial basis while we're relatively young. The reason I think that setting a goal is very important to building a portfolio is because now that we've essentially identified that the outcome or the the result of our portfolio is to be able to, as you said, X, Y, and Z, then it helps us to make decisions now about what we're investing in and also take away emotion from when we do uh, invest in things and knowing that the end goal is sort of 20, 30 years down the track. Would you agree, Ren? Yeah, yeah. So I think if our goals were shorter term, then perhaps what we would be doing is investing in different asset classes, different yep. stocks that are going to be able to help us to reach those shorter term goals. Yeah. But because we've got a longer term goal, then we probably gravitate more towards products that are going to benefit us over the longer term. We, we have time on our side. We can be a bit more aggressive with things. We can take on more of a growth mentality and also not worry about market fluctuations. For example, if the markets are bombing out, we know that, look, we don't probably need our share portfolio to be working for us for another 20, 30 years. Yep. Let's write it out. Yep. So what would some reasons be that you have a shorter term goal? Perhaps you're using it to try and increase the speed at which you can save for a house deposit or you might be wanting to use it to pay for further education. These are probably things that I necessarily wouldn't use the share market yeah, for. I'm not sure I would either. Yeah. It's a good question. Because I've never really thought short term yeah. about the market and because there's risks associated with that. And yeah. for, for the goals that I just mentioned, I would probably not be using the share market to, I guess, reach that goal. Yeah. So yeah. I think, look, there would definitely be reasons that you want to achieve short term results. And the classic one, not probably not for listeners of our podcast, but generally is it's people's career and people have career risk if they're not achieving a certain percentage every year. So there's a lot of people, there's a lot of participants in the stock market that are trying to achieve short-term goals. But I think for a lot of people that would be listening, a lot of people like us, trying to achieve what you want to achieve in the short term financially through the share market 
may not be the best option. Yeah. It may work, but you may be wearing more risk than you're comfortable with. Absolutely. Yeah. So like I reckon one of the most common questions we get on equity mates is I've got X dollars. I'm trying to get to X plus Y dollars to save for a house. What should I invest in? And it's generally the answer is you shouldn't, yeah. Unle- unless you do have a you know, you're looking to buy a house in a decade sort of thing. There is just that risk that things might go bad, GFC 2.0, whatever it is. There's just there's a lot of risk there. So I think if you're trying to preserve your money in the short term, the market there's a fair bit of risk there. Absolutely. So. Look, identifying a goal is very important. As we said, it helps for you to frame the, your thinking around uh, the investing decisions that you make. So speaking of risk, Ren, I think the second sort of pillar to building a great portfolio is to understand the risk in two parts. Risk that you're willing to take. You you might be a bit of a risk taker and you, you can deal with the side effects of being a, a good risk taker. But then also knowing how different asset classes can be used to avoid risk, I guess. Let's take a step back. What is risk when we're talking about investing? Now, I know you have an, an opinion on this. So I'll let what you- What don't I have an opinion on? <laughs> and I agree with what you're about to say. So I'll leave it to you to say. You agree, you agree with what I'm about to say? Yeah. I know what you're going to say. That I carry equity mates. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> well, do you want me to just say what you're going to say? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, so- no, no. I'll leave it to you. I guess one side of risk is the risk of losing your money, obviously. That is one way to look at risk and the risk of yeah losing everything that you've saved up and worked towards. But I know that there's another way to view risk, Ren, and you're about to let us know what that is. Interesting. Okay. So <laughs> I I was actually going to go where, where you went, but I know- Oh, you were going to go down- No, no, no. Gonna say, gonna say. So I think the most important risk is what you mentioned though. So it's worth stressing that, that risk in an investing context is permanently losing your money, be it some or all of it. That That is the key risk. Emphasis on permanently. We're going to come back to that in a second. The risk that you're referring to, and I think is not equally as important, but it is very important, is the, the risk of missing out. You know, you're young once, you have an opportunity set and by not accessing the market, you are deteriorating your future quality of life by not getting in the market early and enjoying the benefits that come with long-term investing. So I think that's what you were referring to. Yeah, the risk of not being in the market. Yeah, there is definitely a risk there. But I think importantly for this, let's talk about the risk of losing your money. Yeah. A lot of investors, especially professional investors, will talk about risk in terms of volatility. And we touched on what volatility meant in an earlier episode, in our jargon episode, but it essentially means the price fluctuations of an asset. And a lot of people think about risk and they say the more volatile an asset is, the more risky it is. In my opinion, and I think in your opinion, that's the wrong way to think about risk. If an asset is volatile and the price is going up and down, at certain points, you may be down, you may have lost money, but you haven't permanently lost it. And that's the risk you're trying to guard against. You're trying to guard against never having that money again. And an asset that is volatile and it goes up and down, at certain points, you may have lost some of your capital. But if it's a good investment and over the long term, you will make money on that investment, the fact that it fluctuated up and down more than other investments has nothing to do with the end result. 
It's just the journey was a lot more rocky to get there. And so if you can shut out the noise and shut out the day-to-day fluctuations, the end result doesn't change. So how is that more risky? So then what what should you be looking for if you're not defining a risky asset based on price fluctuation, what would be some of the reasons that you would classify an asset to be risky? So I guess it depends a little bit on the asset, but we're talking about stocks. Mm -hmm. And so the big risk when we're talking about companies is that one, the company itself will fail. Yeah, it goes bust. Yeah. And then obviously if it goes bust, the share price will go down with it. Yeah. Number two is the share is way too overpriced. Mm -hmm. And so there's a risk that even if the company doesn't go bust, the share price will fall in value. And the way you permanently lose your capital there is it never recovers that value. Yeah. Yeah. So they're the key... The key ways, at least to my mind, is there any others that you're thinking of? Not particularly, no. Yeah. So within each of those key sort of buckets, there's a number of things that you can look for to think about how much risk am I taking on? So if you're talking about how the company is going to perform, you can look at some things like the amount of debt it's got compared to the amount of cash it's generating. Like, can it cover that debt? If it does have a lot of debt, does it have assets and stuff like that that it could sell? Has the manager been involved in, or, you know, the CEO or the management team been involved in companies that have gone bankrupt before for, you know, n- maybe not above table reasons? You know, are, are people investigating the company? Does it look like it's committing fraud? You know, are regulators sniffing around? All that kind of stuff. That, that all pertains to the risk of the company going bad. So why do people then consider, for example, penny stocks to be riskier than perhaps your blue chips such as BHP, Telstra? What is it about the difference in companies that give it that different risk profile? Well, a lot of the time the companies are less mature Mm -hmm. and then there's less liquidity in those stocks. They're bigger gambles, I guess. Yeah. There's a higher upside, but there's a bigger chance that you lose your money. Yeah. So I wanted to make point there of the fact that you mentioned they are sort of less mature. So business cycle or, or where the company is at in its life cycle generally has some sort of correlation to the level of risk that you'll be taking investing in that. Because if you're investing in a very early company, in some instances, the business model hasn't necessarily been fully proven out. So you are taking a bit of a gamble that the company will go on to be successful. We know the model of Telstra and BHP work. Yep. It's just a matter of for how long. Yeah. Now, so that's the risk around the company, the risk about the paying too much and then, you know, losing money on that investment. You could invest in the best company in the world, but there is a price at which it is too expensive and therefore you're wearing too much risk in terms of the opportunity to make money compared to the opportunity to lose money, essentially. And that, that's where some value investing techniques come into play. And you look at your price to earnings ratio, so how much you're paying for the company's profit and stuff like that. Mm, yeah. mm. Bit harder to do as, a, as someone just starting out. Yeah. But something that you certainly can learn along the way. Yeah. Now, before we move on with the episode and uh, dive into the second half, we're just going to take a very quick break to hear from our sponsors. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So we've set a goal. We've thought about risk in terms of what the money that we're going to be putting into companies. What is the risk of that company going bust or am I paying too much for that company? Yep. The third part to then building a good portfolio, Ren, is to then diversify the number of companies that you might be invested in or the exposure that you have to different industries, etc. Yeah. So we explained diversification in in our jargon, jargon episode, we but did. do you want to frame it in this particular context? Yeah, sure. So there's two ways that you can look at this. You can diversify within the number of companies that you hold, and then you can also diversify across the exposure to different industries and asset classes. So for example, when I talk about diversifying across a number of companies, you might really like tech as an industry, or you might really like agriculture as an industry and have a really good understanding of that. Rather than putting all of your money into one company in agriculture, you might want to spread your money across five different companies within agricultural industry. That means that if one goes bust, you still have exposure through the other four and, and vice versa. So you are less affected by one company than you are across four or five Another way to think about diversification is to have access to different industries as well. So you might want to ensure you've got companies in agriculture and tech, as well as telecommunications and perhaps, I don't know, shipping. <laughs> so that's one way to diversify against cyclical changes in industry. If the agriculture industry is going through a drought and really suffering, those businesses might not be performing so well. But on the flip side, tech industry might be booming and you've got exposure to that. So it negates the swings and highs and lows of each and protects you on sort of both the up and the downside. Yep. So it's important to sort of consider your total portfolio where you have exposure and think about how you can protect yourself by using diversification. Yeah. So if you think about the risks that we spoke about and then you think about how diversifying protects against those risks and we just do a simple work example, you're a new investor, you got 10 grand. If you put it in one company and that company goes bankrupt or you pay too much for that company, too bad. So sad. You're yeah. out of here. You're out of business. You're out of business. If you have that 10 grand and you put $1,000 into 10 companies, even if you screwed up on that one company that you put all of your money into in the previous example, you're only losing a tenth of your portfolio. Mm. You still got nine grand invested in nine other companies. And then to what Bryce was saying, different industries mean you're protected, different countries, even just different companies within the same industry, there's still company level protection. Now, practical way to do this, and we've spoken about ETFs, exchange-traded funds before, but there's probably no easier way to get diversification in one simple trade. If, taking Renner's example, you've got $10,000, you might want to put $2,000 into five different ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and by doing that, you could get exposure to hundreds and hundreds of different stocks and markets and countries. So, if you're looking to diversify well and cheap at a low cost, ETFs are an excellent way to do that. I think as a general rule of thumb that people may want to implement is that any one security, any one stock, any one asset, whatever it is, should never be more than 5% of their portfolio. Now, that's, that's just a rule of thumb. It's not hard and fast. But in that way, you're not overly exposed to any one company or asset. 
But Ren, what if I have a thousand dollars and I want to invest in two companies? How would you approach that situation? The five percent is probably once your portfolio is a little bit more mature. Yeah. I would say in the early days when you've got a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, whatever it is, you just need to start getting into it. Yeah. I wouldn't put all your eggs into one basket, but you know, if you've got two thousand dollars and you've got two companies a thousand dollars each, I wouldn't stress. But when you start talking about $20,000, $50,000, which you'll hopefully grow your portfolio into, having any more than 5% in one company potentially just exposes you a little bit too much. As I said, it's only a rule of thumb, but it just gives you something to sort of base your decisions around. Because you've got to start somewhere. So there will be a point at which your portfolio may only have one stock in it. It might be an ETF, but... By definition, everyone's portfolio at one point, even yeah. if it's just for a few seconds, has 100%, <laughs> 100 in exactly. one. Yeah. 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 So, uh, as you said, rule of thumb to consider as you start building up more and more. You probably need what around about 20 stocks or so to really really make that yeah. meaningful. But, but the important thing there, the reason that you say 5% rather than 20 stocks is because you don't want people to think, I have 20 stocks, therefore I'm diversified, yeah. if 90% of your money is just in one. Yes. Question, It does your portfolio follow the 5% rule? It almost does. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I said, rule of thumb, A2 milk is more, fair bit more, it's double digits. And that's just because it has run a fair bit I'm not in a position where I want to sell it at this point. As I get more income coming in and I save, I'm not buying any more A2 milk. Mm -hmm. I'm buying other things and mm. that's reducing the percentage that A2 milk is in my portfolio. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm not selling A2 milk and putting it into other things because I want to see where this A2 milk story goes. Mm. Potentially, it doesn't go much further, but China is a big country and there's a lot of opportunity there. So for me, it is... But I'm conscious of how overweight I am A2 milk and I'm consciously making that decision knowing the risks but also understanding the opportunity. And I think that's probably the important thing. If you're going to be overweight a particular company or asset, just do it knowingly. Yeah, Have, a, have a reason to do it. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Any, uh, any major ones? So by nature of the employee share scheme. I've, I'm pretty overweight with Woolworths, but that's just because the way that it keeps pumping through. But generally, most are within sort of the single digits. I think from memory, my only other one was Afterpay. Okay. And I it's also a larger trade. Story. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to keep writing that. But to your point, I haven't been adding anything to it. Yeah. It's just growing and I'm putting other things in. Gold is growing rather quickly. Gold? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. All right. So is there anything else you want to cover off from diversif a diversification point of view? No, I think that's that's covered it. Nice. So we've gone setting a goal. We've thought about the risks. We've discussed the importance of then diversifying also as a way of reducing your risk. And then it comes down to an allocation. So when we talk about allocation, we're talking about how much cash do we want to put into each trade? How much cash do we want the portfolio to be overall? But then also considering how much cash do we want to keep on the side if that's part of your strategy yep. and, and what should the overall mix look like? Yeah, well, as well as what other assets should play a role. Yes. You, know, you mentioned gold before, how much do you allocate to stocks, how much do you allocate to gold, property of... Property is tough because if you're putting money in property, generally that instantly becomes 
95% of your yeah. portfolio. Yeah. yeah, unless you're a multimillionaire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's just start with probably one of the more common questions we get, which is how do I know how much to buy of a stock, right? In any one individual trade? In any one individual trade. What's your answer? Well, so firstly, you're somewhat limited to the amount of money that you've got. If yeah. you've got 500 <laughs> bucks, you probably can't do any more than 500 bucks. I think the corollary of that is you wouldn't you, we would not recommend borrowing to no, trade and no, we would no. not recommend putting trades on your credit card. Absolutely not. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't even know if you can put a trade on a credit card, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, isn't that what Chris Sarka did back in the day? Did he? Yeah, that's the story, I'm pretty oh, sure. Yeah, and he we, made I, a- I know that you can't do it through like the likes of some of the brokers that we use. What you if can't you just link up your credit card? I mean, I don't want to- You'd have to do a cash advance, yeah, take yeah, it yeah, out, yeah, put yeah. it in your bank yeah. account. Yeah. <laughs> but that is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so dumb. Well, I mean, just logically think about it. If your interest rate is, let's say, 19%, you've got to be beating that benchmark just to break even. Yeah. yeah. And if you were doing that, well, full credit. But yeah, we're not here to talk about that. Just do not do it. So to answer how much should I be buying, let's hypothetically say you have enough money to be able to aim for a certain percentage, right? And this is entirely in an individual thing that if we're going for, say, the 5% rule, then you can pretty easily work out that how much you need to buy to make your stock sort of 5% of your total portfolio. Yeah. I think this is a bit of a how long's a piece of string question. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, your upper limit would be about 5% unless you had super high conviction that something was amazing was going to happen. But yeah, it really, it really is so context dependent. I think at the early stages, Ren, it's probably not something to worry about too much. It's more just about getting some trades in, building that portfolio. But I think mainly just thinking about making sure you're not putting all of it into one thing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. There's always going to be the next opportunity in the market. And so whilst at the time, it's really hard to say, I'm not going to put all my money into this. It's just better to err on the side of caution, especially when you're learning. Protect yourself by minimizing your risk and minimizing your exposure to any one trade. But yeah, it is a bit of a how long is a piece of string question. So then how about we discuss allocation of, I guess, LICs versus ETF versus direct stocks? Is there a way to approach that? So maybe do we take a step back and talk about broader asset allocation first, and then we'll talk about shares specifically and that? So I think it is good to have exposure. You shouldn't be 100% shares. There is definitely merit to having exposure to some other things as well, gold and other commodities, always having a little bit of cash, bonds, just to diversify, again, diversification, diversify your sources of risk. And also in different market environments, different assets perform differently. So when there's trouble brewing, when people think a recession's coming or something like that, Gold and bonds are generally considered more safe haven assets. The share market generally falls. Vice versa, when the economy is doing really well, you want to be in equities, not so much in gold. So it changes. Do you have the amount that you want in some of those different asset classes? No, I think generally speaking from what I've learned along the journey is that you should have at least sort of 5% allocation to gold just from a defensive point of view. So that's what I've got. I think I've got about 7%. I just want to pick up on something that you mentioned, Ren, shares versus commodities versus property or whatever. You and I both own gold through the stock market. Yep. So do you consider that to be part of your share portfolio or do you classify that as as a bit different? I just want to make it clear that uh, you, you can diversify in assets through the stock market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think of that as gold and you could do the same. You could buy bond ETFs and stuff like that. And then you would think about that as 
a bond. Yeah. Because well, for all intents and purposes, it will act like a bond. It will pay you like a bond. It just is, It's again, ETFs are just a wrapper that we, yeah. that we keep saying this. ETFs are just the vehicle to give you access to whatever's underlying it. Yeah. So one of the beauties of the stock market is that you can get access to all of these assets via the share market and diversify that way. Okay. So to answer then your question, how do I think about it? It's sort of, uh, I don't really have a hard and fast as well. It's a bit of a, a, as you said, property. Well, I'm not going down that route at the moment. So I try to be as diverse as possible. So I have a good mix of stocks versus gold, as you said. Well, that's probably probably it, to be honest. I don't have any bonds. I don't have any property and I've got cash. That's my other thing. Yeah. yeah. So I do have a bit of, or I have a few bonds, gold and cash, but vast majority is in equities. Yeah. And that's just because we're young. Yeah. We, we have time on our side and equities are the biggest growth opportunity. Mm. And so I can't remember where I heard this, but like a general rule of thumb. Now this is highly general, but it may help you sort of think about how much money you want in defensive assets and how much you want in growth assets mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in this case, growth assets are mainly equities and defensive assets are things like bonds, gold, cash. Generally, take it as your age in defensive and then the remainder in growth. Interesting. So, for example, I'm 26. Yeah. About, so then I want about a quarter of my portfolio defensive and then 75% growth. I'm definitely more than 75% mm, equities, mm. probably. Yeah. So it's just a general rule of thumb. But the idea is as you get older, the percentage you have in defensive assets increases as well. And so then by the time you're 80 and you're in retirement, about 80% of your money is in defensive Defensive, assets and 20 in growth. Growth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Nice. Good rule of thumb. Very vague general rule of thumb. Something I don't certainly, not intentionally, but I definitely don't have 28 percent worth of defensive yeah i think the other thing is like as soon as you have kids you know you've got a family to pay for and all of that your shift from growth to defensive will accelerate very quickly you'll start getting a lot more defensive because you've got your family to look after stuff like that absolutely so i imagine that our shift from aggressive to defensive won't happen along a linear time scale as we get older but it will more change due to life circumstances and so i'm more than happy to be far more aggressive while I don't have anyone else relying on me, while I have the opportunity set to really be aggressive. Yeah, agree. So you could probably then take that same approach, Ren, when you're looking at allocation within your share portfolio. We're in a position where we can afford to have some pretty aggressive stock positions. And even through ETFs, you can take on some pretty aggressive positions as well. So whilst you can apply that at 28 to whatever, or 25 to 75 to overall asset allocation, you could probably apply that to your your share portfolio as well. Yeah, 100%. Now you asked the question, individual stocks v ETFs, v LICs. I think for me, at least, I don't have any desire to say, I want this many in, this much in LICs, this much in ETFs, this much in stocks. The only thing that I think of in terms of this split is am I duplicating yeah. my exposure across those things? So, for example, if as an individual stock, I own the Commonwealth Bank, in my ETF, I have a Australian Bank's ETF. And then in the LIC, the listed investment company, which is essentially a, a fund manager investing your money for you, if I know that that fund manager has a big stake in Commonwealth Bank, then across all those three things, I'm exposed to Commonwealth Bank. And if something goes wrong with the Commonwealth Bank, then all three of those take a hit. 
So it's really good to spread your money across those three things, ETFs, listed investment companies, and your individual shareholdings. But it's not diversifying risk if they're all just holding the same stuff. Agree. And the same sort of consideration should be given to your superannuation account as well, Ren. 100%. Considering that your superannuation is run just like a normal fund in the background and has exposure to all of the major companies in Australia, probably it, it probably just follows something similar to the ASX 200, depending on how you've set your superannuation account up. Know that that is ticking away in the background and that you're getting exposure to it and use that to then also think about how you want to position your personal portfolio as well. Because to Ren's point, if your super's all in, whilst you're probably going to access it at a little different time, you don't want to over-duplicate. So one other question that we get, and I think it's important when we're talking about asset allocation and how you build your portfolio, is how much would you focus on dividend-paying stocks and how much would you focus on stocks that are more growth-orientated? At this time in our lives, I think growth is certainly something that I am pursuing more than dividends. Whilst dividends are an added bonus, if, if the company pays it and I'll reinvest it and use compounding, then that's great. But for me, if I'm to pursue a, a dividend sort of strategy, I'm likely to be investing in companies that are much more mature and paying a good dividend and I'm not going to be getting as much capital growth as I, I was pursuing those sort of high growth companies, which are unlikely to pay a dividend or pay a very small dividend. Also, to really make the most of dividend payments, you know, you need a large amount of money in there to actually get decent, you know, I'm talking tens of thousand dollars sort of payment, right? And yes, it takes time to build up, but right now I'm not really pursuing that as my number one strategy. It's an added bonus and I'm sure over time it will change, but at this stage, growth over dividend for me. Yeah, nice. So I think the main things in terms of building your portfolio as you go from buying your first stock to developing a broader number of holdings and you go further on your investment journey is to really focus on spreading the risk across multiple holdings and spread the risk across multiple asset classes. I agree. Yeah, that's that's really what we want people to take away from this. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are the four fundamentals, Ren, when it comes to setting up a great investment portfolio. Think about what goals you want. Think about the risk that you are willing to take and also the risk the companies that you are investing in. Think about diversifying and also about your allocation. Pretty yeah. pretty straightforward. And, and look, what you may think is your goal and your strategy now, it may evolve and it definitely will evolve as time goes on. Don't be worried about setting out hard and fast now. Just be willing to change as you go, I guess. And as we always say, you're not going to have a better opportunity than when you get started. So just get stuck in. Yep. Always good to chat stocks and markets, Ren. Very much looking forward to our final episode and our wrap up in the next episode where I think we bring it all together and uh, hopefully have broken down almost all barriers that are out there for uh, beginners to get into the market. Nice one. Thanks for listening to Get Started Investing, a production of Equitymates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Get Started Investing is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The hosts of Get Started Investing may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 